Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, Please like book pages. Well, tonight's topic, which is such an interesting topic, is ebony and ivy, race, slavery, and the troubled history of America's universities with Stephen Craig Stephen Wilder. Craig Stephen Wilder is a professor of American history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and has taught at Williams College and Dartmouth College. Now, many of America's revered colleges and universities, from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton to Rutgers, Williams College, and UNC, were soaked in the sweat and the tears and sometimes the blood of people of color. The earliest academies proclaimed their mission to Christianize the savages of North America and played a key role in white conquest. Later, the slave economy and higher education grew up together, each nurturing the other. Slavery-funded colleges built campuses and paid the wages of professors. Wilder shows our leading universities dependent upon bondage became breeding grounds for the racial, racist ideas that sustained them. Ebony and Ivy is a powerful and propulsive study and the first of its kind, revealing a history of oppression behind the institutions usually considered the cradle of liberal politics. So let me give a warm welcome to Professor Craig Stephen Wilder to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Craig. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I am so glad to have you, and we will talk and talk and talk. This is certainly an intriguing, intriguing study that you have conducted. So why don't you give us some background? What made motivated you to examine the history of America's most revered universities? Honestly, you know, I actually got into this topic somewhat by accident. I was, um, it started about now, 12 years ago, um, back in 2002. I was coming, I was going to Dartmouth College. I had just taken a position at Dartmouth. And I was actually working on what was supposed to be a little article. And it was just going to explain how black abolitionists, how free black people living in the decades before the Civil War managed to enter the profession since they were excluded largely from colleges and universities. So how do you become 
a minister at the you know Colored Presbyterian Church in Newark or a teacher at Colored School Number Two in New York, if you can't attend a college or a university. And there were just these remarkable stories of these young people, often in fact you know young teenagers, um, 13, 14, 15 years old, traveling all over the Northeast in search of an education and often being attacked by individuals and mobs um, opposed to their education. And as I was working on that project, I got increasingly interested in the fact that the colleges that excluded them were actually playing a role in shaping their persecution. And I, and I wanted to know why. Um, as someone who's mm -hmm. you know, spent my whole career teaching in colleges and universities, it wasn't, you know, my perception of the university was very different than the university I was seeing in that historical moment. And I wanted to trace the roots of that resistance. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm just intrigued, you know, by your title, uh, Ebony and Ivy. So, you know, although you, your intent was, as you said, to, to just do a little topic, get just some basic information, <laughs> you know, it, it, I think that's how a lot of people start. They, their intent right, was right. Just, just a little, just a little. But at what point did you realize your research was much larger than a brief, let's say, journal yeah. article. Right, right. And, and you know, think about it. You know, there's this amazing thing that happens around, you know, 1831, 1832. There's this young teenager in New York, about 17 years old, James McCune Smith, who finishes what's basically the colored schools, the African schools of New York City. And there's no place mm -hmm. for him to go. He's an Episcopalian. He applies to Columbia uh, College, Columbia University in New York City, um, which is an Episcopalian school. It's affiliated with the Episcopalian Church at the time. Um, but they reject him because of the color of his skin. There's no place uh -huh. for him to go. And so the black New Yorkers, the, the churches, the communities, the free black community, basically raise a fund and they put him on a ship and they send him to Glasgow, Scotland. And over the next five years, he actually earns three degrees, the Bachelor of Arts, the Master of Arts, and the Doctor of Medicine degree in Glasgow. He also helps to excite the Glasgow and the Scottish Emancipation Movement, the abolitionist movement in Scotland. So while he's at the University of Glasgow, not only does he complete these degrees, but he actually also emerges as an activist. And he comes back to New York, one of the best trained doctors in the city. And really, what, as I was looking at that story, one of the things that fascinated me was Columbia University's role in it. At the very moment uh -huh. that Columbia was rejecting James McKeon Smith, this young kid, because of the color of his skin, the president of Columbia, William Alexander Dewar, was actually leading the American, the local branch of the American Colonization Society, which is an organization founded mm -hmm. in 1817 with the goal of removing free black people from the United States to someplace outside the U.S. That's the organization that establishes the Liberia colony in 1820. Yes. And so that's, that's when it turned for me. Over and over again, I saw in the stories of these young kids seeking education, colleges actually standing as obstacles to their education and colleges actually mm -hmm. standing in in um, basically in concert with in defense of slavery um, over human liberty and over the right to pursue education and so really the project started to turn fairly early I I, I, I resisted it let me say I, I kept trying to tell myself <laughs> I was doing something very small and then that small thing got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what ended up happening is I really just at one point, probably about two or three years into the project, somewhere around 2005, sat back and finally admitted to myself that I was actually writing a book about colleges, not a book about a small group of students. Um, and what uh -huh. was really fascinating me was the relationship between the American college and American slavery. Mm hmm. Well, now you have to tell us more about that. Okay. Just, well, you know, just and, get us and into so really, it, you know. Because, yeah. yeah. At that moment, at, at that moment, I decided, like a historian, you know, you got to go back to the beginning. Um, and okay. so, really, it was going back to the very first colleges, and actually rethinking the way, or you know, challenging myself to think about the way that we've actually described them historically. And we tend to see colleges as these fairly benevolent and innocent institutions that sit in the backdrop of history. And I wanted to bring them to the foreground. And I wanted to point out that you know, if, if we take that moment in 1832 with James McCune Smith, Columbia wasn't passively acting at that moment. It was active in the social, in the greater political culture of the United States. 
the president of the university mm-hmm. and the faculty were active in the colonization movement. They were actively defending um, these campaigns to limit the rights of free black people in the Northeast. And they were, in fact, mm-hmm. positioning the university in defense of slavery. And so I decided to go back to the beginning and really trace what happened to these colleges and how they got to that point. And if you do that, if you go back to, you know, in the British colonies, in, in British mainland North America and colonial North America, you go back to the establishment of Harvard in 1636, what you find is that, you know, the Puritans get a charter for a college. They establish it in Newtown, where in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm sitting right now. And um, a year later, the Pequot War breaks out, a war between the Puritans and the Pequot Indians in um, southern Connecticut, um, and between the English uh-huh. and the Pequot. It culminates in the Pequot Massacre, in which hundreds of Pequot are actually executed, and hundreds of mostly women and children are captured and sold into slavery. The first ship to leave, the first slave ship to leave New England, a ship named the Desire, leaves carrying captives of the Pequot War, Pequot women and children, for sale in the Caribbean, um, Bermuda in the Caribbean. It's also the first slave ship to return to New England and returns with black people, with various commodities, including Negroes, um, as it'll report. That's that next year, that's 1637, 1638, Harvard actually gets its first slave. The, a man who's referred wow. to as the Moor is actually owned by Nathaniel Eaton, who's the only professor and the master of the college, and whose wife actually basically runs the house where the boys live on Harvard Yard. And so two years after Harvard is founded, Harvard gets its first slave. And from that very moment on, the American college and American slavery emerged side by side. Um, Every college established after that, William and Mary in 1693 in Virginia, um, Yale in uh, 1701 in Connecticut, you know, at the founding of Yale. The, founder, the founding ministers actually gather from several towns. They come riding into town from the surrounding towns together to hold the sort of organizational meeting. And as you know, Yale's history points out, you know, they're followed by their men's servants and their slaves. At William and Mary, you know, the college not only owns slaves, but the boys at the college can actually take the option of bringing their personal slaves to campus with them. Um, at Princeton, you know, founded in 1746, the first eight presidents of Princeton are slave owners. The first 75 years of the college's history, it's governed by slave owners. And as the Princeton and Slavery course down at uh, the university now, Princeton is actually running a course called Princeton and Slavery, where students do research into this project. And one of the things they're pointing out is actually the, probably the first person at Princeton, it was then called the College of New Jersey, a Princeton student would have met when they arrived on campus was the president's slave in that colonial period. And so the same thing is true for the College of Philadelphia, which is now the University of Pennsylvania, for King's College, which is now Columbia, for Queen's College, which is now Rutgers, for the College of Rhode Island, which is Brown, and for Dartmouth. The, the The colonial colleges of British North America, one can also do some comparisons to the other colonies. In New Spain, the, the, the Spanish Empire, um, in Mexico, South America, and the Caribbean. The first colleges were also, in fact, um, largely worked by slaves and funded by Spanish participation in the plantation system, the, the participation of Catholic priests in the plantation system, plantation slavery, and the slave trade, which underwrote the sort of establishment of the very first colleges in the Americas, you know, 100 years before Harvard. The first college in the Americas is established in what uh, the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo, and it's still there now. It's actually the Autonomous University in Santo Domingo, which is established in 1536 by Catholic priests, um, and the priests actually purchase and sell enslaved people and use enslaved, enslaved black labor um, to run both their plantations and their universities. And so the story of the colonial college is, in fact, a mirror upon or a lens upon the story of American slavery. Right. Now, you talk about the the students bringing, some of them even brought their slaves uh, to the campus. Now, who are the students? The the students are actually, you know, um, largely young men from fairly well-to-do families and middling families, often slave-holding families or families that are trading in slaves. And so, for instance, at William & Mary, where we have, you know, some of the best evidence, about students bringing slaves to campus or actually in southern colleges. And so William and Mary in Virginia, at the time that Thomas Jefferson is a student at William and Mary, and he goes there between 1760 and 1762, 
about 10% of the students choose to bring their slaves to campus with them and to pay extra fees to board their slaves. The college, William & Mary itself, owns its own slaves, and it purchases slaves um, annually. It leases out slaves, and it also takes slaves as donations, like a lot of colleges did. Um, that's harder to find. That pattern is harder to find in the northern colleges. You find, the, for uh -huh. example, the presidents and faculty owning slaves and the trustees owning slaves. But it's rarer to find examples of students bringing slaves to campus. We know that it did happen because we know, for instance, um, just before the American Revolution, George Washington comes to New York with his stepson, Jackie Custis, to enroll him at King's College, now Columbia University. And Jackie brings his slave, Joe, with him. And the president of Columbia at the time, the Reverend Miles Cooper, outfits Jackie with a suite of rooms for Jackie and his slave. Um, and the two years where Jackie is there, Joe, Jackie's enslaved man, actually lives on the Columbia campus with him. Um, other enslaved people had been on the campus for sure, but these are the moments where we actually know um, students brought slaves to campus. And those students, you know, this is not, um, this is actually a good way of understanding the, who these students are. Part of the reason why Miles Cooper was so um, courteous to Jackie Custis is that Jackie Custis is probably the wealthiest boy in Virginia. Um, and you know, one of the things that the president of King's College, now Columbia, was attempting to do was to make new connections to the Virginia elite through George Washington. And in fact, college presidents in the colonial period often, in fact, looked for wealthy students from elite families. Um, they looked for them uh -huh. in the South. They looked for them in the Northeast uh, slave trading ports like Rhode Island, New York, and Philadelphia. And they turned to the Caribbean to find them among the wealthy West Indian planters. In fact, the wealthiest Brit Brits in all of the Americas are in the West Indies. And no college um, was unaware of that fact. They, ex they raked that region quite a bit for students and donations. Right. And so even though they, they looked to the wealthy uh, planters and what have you to, to support the college, they also went out, from, from what I recall reading, to, uh, to raise money for what they said the Native American uh, students. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about how Native American students were targeted as a means to raise funds for the very universities that we revere today? You know, it's a, it's a fascinating story, and, and partly I got to that part of the story by actually looking at exactly what we were just talking about. The, these colleges and their, you know, their presidents and their professors, their trustees, this constant search for money. Uh, and one of the things I started yeah. asking myself is why do these tiny little colleges need so much money? You know, uh -huh. they're actually relatively small institutions. They're pretty mean little institutions, but they were constantly fundraising. Um, and part of the answer actually is Native America. Part of the answer is if you go back to early Harvard, um, one of the reasons for establishing a college in New England, uh, establishing a college among the Puritans, is to provide a trained ministry, an orthodox ministry, for the expanding Puritan settlements. But another reason uh -huh. is actually to evangelize Native people and to wage cultural warfare against Native Americans. Um, to help to bring Native people under the dominion of the um, expanding communities of Christians on the eastern seaboard. And so, for instance, actually, once Harvard's established, a lot of effort goes into raising money for the evangelization of Native students. Um, and, you know, we can actually sh see examples of this. The first brick building on Harvard Yard is the Indian College. Um, and the Puritans are raising money in England um, for Indian evangelization. They're sending reports on the evangelization of Native people and the conversion of Native people to Christianity. They're sending evidence of the progress of the Christian faith among the Indians. We know, for instance, that William and Mary, one of the early, the, an early part of the mission of the college in um, Virginia after it's established in 1693 is the evangelization of Indian students. In fact, actually, another way of thinking about this is the very first college in British America is Harvard, but actually it would have been a college in Virginia. Um, in the 16-teens, around 1615, 1617, the king actually um, grants a charter for the establishment of a college in Virginia for, in fact, and what's basically an Indian college 
um, about 20,000 acres are granted to the college to help support the professors, the students, and its mission. And part of the goal is to evangelize the native people of the Virginia region. And the, what happens is actually, you know, the, um, the funds are sent, the land is granted, the charter is granted, uh, basically a headmaster is appointed, a rector is appointed, um, but an Indian war breaks out and destroys the settlement and the project. And so the first college b becomes Harvard. Um, rather than the early Enrico Virginia College, what would have would have been in Enrico uh, today, and so the, a part of the early mission of the college, a major part of the reason for establishing colleges in the Americas, is the evangelization of Native people. And you can also again see this if you pull the lens back and look beyond the British colonies. When the Spanish uh -huh. arrive in the 16th century in Mexico and sent, and 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 uh, the Dominican, what's now the Dominican Republic, Hispaniola and South America, they, they quickly establish, establish colleges, and one of the things that they're doing is evangelizing Native people. The, the colleges are there for the purpose of converting Native people. And I argue in the book that one of the roles of the early college, that we have to start, stop thinking about colleges as innocent academies, and we have to start thinking about them as instruments of colonialism, as tools mm -hmm. that help to establish colonies, secure colonies, and shift the balance of power between the people being colonized and the people doing the settling. Well, there's a comment coming out of the, there are a couple of comments coming out of the chat. One is a question, was this with the consent of Native Americans when you're talking about the evangelization of Native Americans? Well, that, that, yes and no. I mean, the answer, the quick answer is no. Um, the quick answer is actually that colleges are being deployed. Um, much like other instruments. And in fact, I, I write in the book that you have to think of colleges like armories and forts and other instruments of colonialism and imperialism. Um, another way of actually thinking about this is actually if you, um, if you forget about the Americas for a minute, before the English ever arrive in the Americas, they've already experimented with this model of using universities in Ireland and Scotland the places where the English had already begun to colonize or had colonized um, and had already waged cultural warfare. A um, hundred years before the English arrived in the Americas, the English crown was actually funding professorships, colleges, universities, buildings in both Ireland and Scotland with the goal of actually trying to establish religious orthodoxy and break cultural resistance against English rule. That model was not new. Um, what was new is, in fact, uh -huh. the ability to project it across the ocean and to deploy it against yes. Native people. Yeah. And so we have a, a, another comment. It just states that sure. um, the college is really perpetuating religion and growing religious sects motivated the founding of American universities for some time. Well, I also have a question coming out of the chat, I mean, on the line, uh, 443, you're live. You have a question or a comment? Hey. You're live, 443? Okay, we did have someone on, but they've, they've uh, gotten off the line oh. right now. Well, let me, let me just but, give them know, a quick example. Go ahead on. Sure. Yeah, let me give them a quick example of how this worked. At William and Mary, you know, the William and Mary establishes an Indian college in 1723, 30 years after it's founded. They open an Indian college, roughly about 1723. Um, and the, um, it's called Bradford and Hall. And in the instructions for Bradford and Hall, it's basically run, it's um, funded by a fund that's established in England for the evangelization of Native people in the Americas. But the instructions actually tell them to take Native American children from friendly nations and kidnap Native children from unfriendly nations and bring them to the school for their Christianization um, and then to send back into Native territory children, basically ministers of their own nation and blood who could actually accelerate the process of cultural conversion. We know, for instance, that when George Berkeley, the, um, the a British minister who arrives in the Americas in the 1720s at about the same time, um, and lands in Rhode Island with a plan to establish his own university on the island of Bermuda. Um, when he comes, his goal is actually, again, to take Native children from friendly nations. And as he puts it, kidnap children from unfriendly nations. And he even specifies the age range for them. He wants them old enough to have mastered their native language 
but young enough not to have learned what he calls the bad habits of their nations. Um, and he plans on evangelizing them, converting them, and then sending them back as agents of cultural transformation. Berkeley's project falls apart, um, but one of the co long-term consequences of his project is that while he's waiting for the funds and everything to come together for his Bermuda College, he actually purchases a farm on Rhode Island and begins to buy enslaved black people. When the project falls apart, he donates that farm to Yale. And that small slave plantation on Rhode Island actually becomes the source, the funding source, for the first graduate programs at Yale and the first scholarships at Yale. And so again, you know, the, one of the things I try to argue in the book is that the conquest of Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans get braided together in the history of the college because the way that we pay for the project of waging almost continual cultural warfare against Native people is by turning to the greatest source of wealth in the Atlantic world, the emerging Atlantic slave trade, African slave trade, and African slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you actually make a comment, uh, uh, seemed like I read this in your book, that the slave economy and higher education actually grow up together. Right, right. In fact, you know, one of the ways to, to look at that is actually no college survives the colonial world without finding a way to attach itself to the slave economy. And so the difference between a college succeeding and a college failing is its ability to attach itself to that, econ that, that economy. Mm. This, I mean, it, it's almost mind-boggling just to, to hear, you know, you make that comment because when we, when we think of education, and, and this is also a comment coming out of your book, when we think of education, we sometimes fail to put the education system in the context of money and power, but this is exactly where it should be placed. So tell us about what you uncovered as you went back in time, and you did tell us some of this about the origin of education, but also tell us about some of the sources that you use, because that's, I mean, we're just, just intrigued by the fact that you were able to uncover so much. Well, you know, the, um, if, if to draw off that last discussion we were having, you know, there's a moment in the history of the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, when the college is actually really in trouble in the 1760s. Um, it had a series of pres short-lived presidencies, where the presidents literally uh, died very quickly. Um, and the college was kind of suffering. It had a shortage of money, a shortage of students, and it was kind of really. And one of the um, alumni was actually studying Benjamin Rush, who becomes a signer of the Declaration of Independence, actually a noted abolitionist, a signer of the De Declaration of Independence, um, and a medical doctor. Rush was actually studying medicine at the time in Scotland. And he convinces the um, Reverend John Witherspoon to actually come to the Americas, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, to help save the college. Witherspoon arrives in the late 1760s, and his plan for saving the College of New Jersey is to turn to the South and the West Indies. He turns to the South in search of students and money, and he turns to the West Indies in search of students and money. In fact, he publishes a missive to the West Indies very quickly after his, shortly after his arrival in the Americas in which he says you know, the very name of a West Indian has come to imply great opulence. Um, and he uh -huh. encourages the West Indian planters to send their sons to Princeton, New Jersey, where they'll be well taken care of and, and carefully catered to um, and protected educated well and sent back as responsible young men. And that's what I meant when I said, you know, no college survives the colonial period without actually attaching uh -huh. itself to the greatest source of wealth in the Atlantic world. And so, and so how do we know all of this? Well, part of it is actually, you know, it's the letters that went back and forth across the Atlantic, um, the letters between, for instance, in that case, New Jersey and Scotland. And Scotland happens to be the site where a lot of young colonial men who finished college went to study medicine and then to come back to the Americas and establish some of the first medical colleges in the Americas. And so we can actually trace the letters that go back and forth between them. Um, to find the lives of the enslaved and the presence of enslaved people on these colonial campuses, and one of the things you do is you, you really have to go through the letters and diaries of the presidents, the professors, and the students. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Increase Mather, who for um, who served for a time as the president of um, the interim president of Harvard College, um, owned an enslaved man. 
at least one slave, and his son Cotton Mather also owned a slave. Um, and you know the and the way that you can find that is actually often in, in both in his diary and, and in some of the personal letters. We know, for instance, for the Princeton presidents, that in there you know, there's one who actually has a bill of sale in his in the collection of his records at Princeton University. There's a bill of sale for an enslaved man. Um, there's some at Dartmouth College. The founder of Dartmouth, the Reverend Eliezer Wheelock. Um, in the records of Dartmouth College and in the Dartmouth College archives um, for the 18th century are a series of purchase agreements and sale agreements between Eliezer Wheelock, the founder of Dartmouth, and his various neighbors in Connecticut um, and New Hampshire in which he purchased and sold enslaved black people. In fact, when Wheelock arrives in New Hampshire, um, he gets a charter for Dartmouth College in 1769, and he arrives with eight enslaved black people seven adults and a child. Um, and I point out in the book that that actually means that Wheelock has more slaves than faculty, more slaves than trustees. Wow. And one could probably mm -hmm. argue that he has more slaves than students, um, that enslaved people are the largest population of people on the early Dartmouth campus. Um, and so mm -hmm. really, in many ways, one of the things that we do is actually the things that everyone who sort of, you know, does colonial history. It's the same sources. They're just in different places. It's letters, it's diaries, it's bills of sale and purchase agreements. Um, in the 18th century, the colonial newspapers start to be a source and can help. So, for instance, um, in New York and in New Jersey and in Rhode Island, by the, by the second half of the 18th century, you can actually start to see just how many enslaved people lived in college towns. Um, because both the um, the sale purchase agreements, uh, you know, the ads to sell people, ads to purchase people, and advertisements for runaway slaves and servants begin to appear, appear fairly regularly, um, and the college towns are actually represented quite well in those ads. Um, you, know, you, the college towns actually have a fairly heavy concentration of enslaved people. Um, you know, there there are other kinds of sources, the tax rolls for the various counties and towns, the census records for the counties and towns and the colonial census records are a little, you know, that um, are quite uneven, but um, the census records for the counties and towns, you know, I spent a lot of time in um, county archives and local archives uh -huh. and municipal archives and state archives from the Carolinas to, you know, um, Eastern Canada, actually, you know, up to Quebec City. Um, search and looking, and but you know, it was, so it was all sorts of records. And then in the universities themselves, the records of the faculty, the minutes of the trustees, the minutes of the faculty meetings, and the records of the president's offices tend to help a lot with understanding um, both the um, way in which enslaved people got used on campus, and also violations of the behavior codes among students uh, that often involve slaves. So, for instance, we know at Harvard in the 18th century, students with you know some some regularity got in trouble um, for using enslaved people for various kinds of entertainment. And on college campuses, that could range from boxing to gambling to drinking um, to other forms of sort of mischief and vandalism. Well, there's also questions. I mean, they're talking about resources, but you know, now this is, of course, much later, but could you tell in, let's say, the 1850 and 60 slave schedules, uh, could you get a feel of how many are the number of slaves in college towns? Was this a resource that you looked at? I, I Well, my project ends largely in the 1830s. I come up to the 1850s and 1860s particularly, but, excuse me, I focus heavily on the Northeast because I want to trace the history of these colonial colleges into I the 19th it. Okay. century and their relationship to slavery. And the only college in the South established in the colonial period that survives is William and Mary. And so the William and Mary story comes up through that period. But you can actually do this much earlier. Actually, in the 1760s and 1750s, 1770s and 1780s, one can actually start to see, using the tax records and the census records for the northeastern colonies, the mid-Atlantic and Virginia, you can actually start to see the concentration of um, enslaved people in college towns. Um, it's fairly regular. I, you know, I point out in the book and in other projects that 
um, enslaved people are so ordinary in college towns that students met enslaved people on both sides of the college wall. But um, local um, local people living in those towns also often used the college and their slaves to sell farms and and to advertise their farms. And so, for instance, in Princeton, New Jersey, there's more than one example of um, local people attempting to sell farms by noting both their own slaves, the, you know, that they had slaves for sale also, and their proximity to the College of New Jersey, um, usually uh-huh. uh, called Nassau Hall, um, the nickname with the nickname Nassau Hall. Um, that's also true in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, you can see examples of this in New York, where people say, "You know, I have property for sale." Also, selling, in fact, various Negroes in close proximity to the college. Um, and so the um, and so you know the the college actually becomes this very real presence in the overall slave economy, and a recognizable uh. Uh, way of understanding both slavery and the emerging Atlantic economy. Well, with that, we're going to take a break and come back and continue having this discussion because it is absolutely amazing, the information that you have uncovered in your book, Ebony and Ivy. So we'll take a quick break and come right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, JeannieBeeRoots.com. You have been listening to Professor Craig Stephen Wilder discuss his book and research, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. Now, I have opened the lines so that any of you that would like to call in and ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Now, Professor Wilder, let's just go back for a second because you have talked a lot about the economy, and about slavery. Well, let's talk about, now, what did the slaves do on campus? Give us just an overview of what you uncovered as some of the tasks that they were uh, encouraged to perform or had to perform while they were on campus. Right. It's, you know, I think the quick answer is everything, you know, everything that you can imagine. And so, um, you know, on a college campus, on a colonial college campus, there's a lot of work that has to get done. Um, you know, wood has to be brought in for fire, fires. Um, fires have to be lighted, um, and water has to be gathered for washing. Um, you know, chamber pots and human waste basically has to get ex- disposed of. Um, rooms have to be cleaned. Clothing has to be mended. Meals have to be cooked. On the more uh, rural campuses, a lot of that has to be done on site, and so you know everything from small farms to need to be tended to um, the butchering of animals. We know, for instance, that one of the presidents of Princeton 
um, kept a slave both in the president's house on campus, but also kept at least one slave at his um, country retreat about a mile away from the campus, whom he, whom he used to actually help uh, uh, do farming um, on his um, in his uh, on his land. Um, so animals got butchered, and 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 um, you know, so meals had to be created. There was errands to be run into town, errands run between the professors, the trustees, and the administrators. Um, you know, Increase Mather, who served as president of Harvard for a while, used his slave to run errands for the college, um, and that was actually fairly common. Um, and so really everything that you can imagine enslaved people doing, they, they took care of the boys who attended the college, they ran errands for lots of the students, um, it was just, you know, everything you can imagine they did. And then we also know that the colleges that owned slaves themselves, where the university and the college itself owned slaves and used enslaved people as part of its endowment. You know, colleges like um, William and Mary in Washington and Lee in Virginia um, actually also would lease out their slaves um, and use and basically use a kind of leasing system to earn money off of enslaved people's labor who they, whom they owned um, when their labor wasn't as necessary on campus. And so we even have you know, um, advertisements for colleges that are actually looking to lease out their slaves during these sort of lulls um, in the academic year. So, I mean, this is, as, as you said before, that the economy, I mean, what was going on could not have happened. You just, these uh, universities actually would not have survived if they did not have the slave labor. That, that, that just sounds like what you're implying here. Right, yeah, uh, you know, and slave labor is critical just to the day-to-day -day functioning of the college. And so I would say two things about that. One is, you know, no college survives the colonial world without attaching itself to that source of money, that incredible source of funds and wealth that is the Atlantic slave trade and African slavery. And on in the day-to-day in -day operations of a college, enslaved people and indentured servants are critical to the running of a colonial college campus. You know, we know, for instance, at Princeton that the Reverend Ashbel Green, one of the presidents of Princeton, um, basically gets an enslaved girl named Betsy Stockton um, through his marriage to Elizabeth Stockton of the Stockton family, the, um, the elite Stockton family in New Jersey. And um, Green actually uses Betsy Stockton in the president's house. Um, and she's basically a servant in the president's house. He eventually sets her free. And she sort of studies uh -huh. privately with him in the president's house and actually becomes an expert on biblical geography um, and it serves as a missionary to the um, Hawaii Islands. Um, because of her expertise with her, her, her critical skills in acquiring languages. Um, and so we know, in fact, in her life, she goes from being an enslaved girl who's basically passed as a gift um, and, and then serves on the, in the president's house at Princeton to a missionary and, and eventually returns to the United States and becomes a teacher in a colored school in New York State. And, you know, how well known, I mean, this information that you're presenting to us, a lot of, of, of people are probably hearing this for the first time, but how, how well known was this information known at the colleges you focused on? And how receptive were they to this information? And this is a question that's coming out of the chat from Selma. Okay. The um you know, I, I think that's a great question. And the, the answer is actually it was known and unknown. Uh, there were things that we knew, and there are things that we chose not to know, uh, we, that we, uh -huh. we simply chose to go no further than uh, where we were. And so I, I hope that makes sense. And what I mean by that actually is if you actually start doing what I did you know, a decade or uh, you know, 12 years ago, um, and you just start surveying the published histories of early American colleges, there are, in fact, references to enslaved people in those histories. You know, the histories of okay. Harvard written in the 19th century and in the mid-20th century actually include references to the enslaved people owned by the presidents of Harvard and some of the faculty of Harvard, at least some references to them. But what, tended to, what tends to happen is if the story of slavery is present in those books, very often the authors um, created enslaved people as sort of caricatures, as these yeah. buffoonish servants, with these oversized faults. And by doing that, 
they erase the moral problem of the presence of slavery on these elite institutional campuses. In the history uh-huh. of Southern colleges, um, the, you tend to actually get much more about the role of slavery at the founding moments of the college, um, because in fact, actually, you know, um, it's hard to avoid. You know, you know, we know at William and Mary, at the University of North Carolina, at Swanee, you know, you've got, in fact, enslaved people building the campuses. Um, but that's also yes. true at yes. Dartmouth. Yeah, that's also true at Dartmouth College in 1769, 1770. It's enslaved people who are uh-huh. building the college. The Reverend Eliezer Wheelock, um, the founder of Dartmouth, in his narrative of the history of the college, which he of of his Indian college, um, Indian school, which he uses as a fundraising tool in Europe, he actually says that his servants, right? He he tells us that his servants are building the various buildings that he needs to keep the college running. But what happens is actually in the more formal histories of the college, that story largely gets erased or it gets sanitized so that the presence of uh-huh. slavery is much less, you know, you get less of a presence of the story of slavery and less clarity about that story. And so um, basically what, what you have is the, for most American colleges, the oldest colleges in the United States, you know, the story of slavery is sprinkled into their formal institutional histories in some way, shape, or form. Um, we know, uh-huh. you know, in the biographies of the early alumni, very often it's pointed out that they, in their wills, they died leaving a certain number of enslaved people to their children or to their wives. Or, you know, we, we know these stories, and so it's there. But I also think that we chose a kind of willful ignorance about learning any more than that. Um, and so, you yeah. know, I can't give any more credit to anyone than I would Ruth Simmons, you know, who is the president of Brown and the first yes. person of color, first woman to head an Ivy League institution. And when Ruth Simmons took the presidency of Brown, you know, now um, a decade ago, one, more than a decade ago, one of the things that happened is the public secret of Brown University's relationship to the slave trade. The, the public secret of the Browns family's, Brown family's role as slave traders um, became, you know, the, started to swirl, um, and, and the gossip started to emerge in a way that was hard to contain. Um, and one of the things yes. that she did is she had the courage to commission a study of the relationship between Brown University slavery and the slave trade. She had the courage to actually empower that committee not just to produce a study for the public and to make public the history that they found, but also to bring forward recommendations for how Brown could repair that history, how it could begin to address that past. And, you know, not only was that an act of great courage for a new president coming into an Ivy League institution under the level of scrutiny that she did, if you remember, when she emerged, you know, the the color of her skin and her gender put her under extraordinary scrutiny at that moment. And she really That's showed right. us how to do this history. She showed us how to do this right. And, you know, so that said, you know, I, one of the things I've, I wrestled with as I was working on the project is this sort of the way in which um, we had institutionally both confessed that slavery was part of this past and attempted to deny the centrality of slavery to the story of these institutions. And so what we wanted to do, basically, generally speaking, what we had tried to do up until the Brown Report um, is really we had tried to tell the story of slavery as a kind of accident, that the colleges, Mm -hmm. if the enslaved people Mm -hmm. on campus or if there were slave traders on the board, it was just an accident of the fact that um, there were slave traders in the bigger economy and there was slavery in the bigger economy, Um, but that the colleges had played no unique or special role in that story. And one of the things I try to do in the book is turn that story upside down because it's completely false. American slavery requires the acquiescence of the American Academy, and the American Academy emerged as a potent and important defender of racial slavery in the Americas. But with that, and, and, I, and I commend you for wanting to turn that story upside down because slavery is something that you just don't talk about. And if you can't even bring out the whole notion of slavery, and it's not even a notion because it's real. I mean, it happened at the colleges during colonial time. When can you talk about it? 
I mean, are the universities even discussing it? Is there a course now? Do, is your book required for for the, the students to read? <laughs> Just so that they can understand. (laughs) We're moving in that direction. And the reason why I gave Ruth Simmons so much praise, not only because it's mostly because she deserves it, but also in comparison, she deserves it even more. When you look back in hindsight, you know, when you look back from this moment, um, one of the things that I was actually kind of fascinated by is when the Brown Report came out, it, it was published in 2006. I was heading to London in 2006. I was, I was basically going to spend about six months, five, six months in London doing research for this book. Um, but when the Brown Report came out, it's just before I left, and I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, this project is over because now that Brown oh. has done this, all Brown's peer institutions are going to do it. You know, and so I figured Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, would all actually start publishing reports. And by the time I got back, the story would largely already be told. And in fact, actually, yeah. I spent that half year in England. I came back and continued to research, and there was a loud nothing. You know, there was a loud silence. Um, and so what has changed in the last couple of years, fortunately, is that the colleges are now starting to really take responsibility for this history themselves. And that's largely been a grassroots push. When the colleges didn't move, when the administrations didn't move, the faculty started to and the students did. And so at Princeton, okay. you know, there was a young woman who did her um, senior thesis on Princeton and slavery. Um, I, I believe her name is Lisa Epstein, who did her thesis on Princeton. I might have her name wrong. I hope I got it right. On Princeton and slavery. Um, Martha Sanweiss in the Princeton History Department then started teaching a course on Princeton and slavery and has done that for the last couple of years. Now uh, mm-hmm. you know, at Harvard, there's a website on Harvard and slavery and Sven Beckert for several years actually did a course in which the students and graduate students researched Harvard's relationship to slavery and the slave trade. Um, at Columbia now, thanks to President Lee Bollinger um, at Columbia, um, Eric Foner, who won the Pulitzer Prize for the Lincoln biography um, just a couple of years ago, Eric Foner is going to be teaching a course on Colombian slavery starting this fall. Um, the, you know, and so I think at a, on a lot of – at William & Mary – there's been both an exhibit on campus that, that the archivists did, and then there's also um, the uh, Lemon Project and other projects on campus that are actually looking specifically at the relationship between the college and slavery. Um, the, the University of Virginia now has, its president has now commissioned a um, report and investigation of Virgin, the University of Virginia's relationship to slavery. And so at more and more colleges, this is starting to happen. But again, I give a lot of credit to both Ruth, Ruth Simmons for setting the example of how to do this, and then to those faculty and students and librarians and archivists on these individual campuses who kept the story alive from 2006 to now. And ultimately, it's been the weight of that movement that has forced these universities to finally really to start taking responsibility for investigating and exploring this past. Well, this is wonderful. And we have a comment, and this is going to take put a little different twist on, on what you're talking sure. about. But this is from Angela, and she wants to know, have any, has there been any effort to provide scholarships for anyone who could prove that they descend from the slaves on those campuses? Um, I'm not sure about the specifics of who can prove that they descend from the slaves on those campuses, but there have actually been attempts to um, provide scholarships. In fact, actually, one of the outcomes of the Brown Report, the committee also offered, if you remember, I said that the committee was also empowered to make recommendations for how to begin the, the process of establishing compensatory justice, restorative justice, right? How do you respond to that history? Um, And one of the things that the um, committee had come forward with was a recommendation for both uh, the Center for Slavery and Justice to continue the study of this issue on campus and to keep this story alive, but also um, scholarships and um, recruitment of students. And so, yes, there actually have been these pushes on campus you know, um, that is not even close to enough. <laughs> so when you look campus by campus, institution by institution, the first step is actually being honest about the past. The second step yes. and the, you know, yes. the consequence of that step is actually being honest about addressing that past. 
Um, and mm-hmm. and we, we have to get that first step first. You know, we have to get the full story of what happened first. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of talking about the book, and every now and then someone will say, you know, well, why can't we come together? You know, and just, you know, why can't we get past this history and come together? Well, you know, I believe in that. I, you know, but the process is truth and reconciliation, right? Uh, the truth has to come first. First, we have to wrestle with the harsh reality of what happened. And then we can begin the process of talking about how we address that reality. But too often we want to skip the truth part and get to the reconciliation because that sounds nice. Uh-huh. Uh, but that never works. Yes, it does. You know, that, that, mm-hmm. that can't last. Yes, and and somebody said, well, first you have to tell the truth. You have to get to the truth, and and this is something right. that you definitely said. I, I have an amen coming out of the, out of the, <laughs> the chat room right now. Uh, I also have a question coming up, and this is area code 212. You have a question or a comment? You're live? Oh, yeah. yes. Hello, Bernice and Dr. Wilder. Hello. Shannon Christmas. Uh, thank you for <laughs> picking up. Uh, I wanted to say that I found reading this particular book very uh, interesting and also very strange, both as an African-American and also as a descendant of several of the individuals who were mentioned by name within uh, the book and several of the families that were mentioned uh, as uh, alumni of the university and also as an alumnus of Harvard University, and I'm just really grateful that this story is being told in a very unique way, uh, because it's something that I think, as a nation, we like to keep swept under the rug, uh, who was actually involved in uh, the enslavement of various people, and also uh, which institutions did or did not have a role. As I mentioned in the chat, I can tell you that during my time at Harvard University as an undergraduate, the university's role uh, in the institution of slavery was never discussed inside or outside of the classroom. And so I'm just grateful that this book is now in play and out there and has people having this dialogue because until we know the whole story, we can't really begin the process of reconciliation, for lack of a better term. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, actually, at Harvard, if you think about it, Samuel Eliot Morrison, the noted historian of Harvard, um, who actually wrote much of Harvard's institutional history and created much of this sort of persona of Harvard that we know today. Morrison actually writes about some of the enslaved people who were on campus, but he does so in particularly unflattering and dehumanizing ways. Um, And that tends to be what happened in that early period, and we really have to challenge that. I also wanted to say, you know, if we think about the question that was asked about, you know, whether or not there are scholarships for specific enslaved people, descendants of uh, people who are actually enslaved on these campuses, one of the reasons why I would actually caution against that is that that actually underestimates the role that slavery played on these campuses. Um, one of the things uh-huh. I try to do in the book is actually show that the colleges, not only were they they're enslaved people on campus, not only did the president and some of the faculty own slaves and the students and the trustees were slave traders, but the colleges often actually invested their money in regions where slavery was expanding so that they could actually draw rents from the growth of the slave economy as it marched um, as it marched out, as it expanded outward. And so here you actually have the colleges profiting from slavery without owning anybody. Um, they're just investing in a process that's tied to slavery and the slave trade. Um, and so I, I actually think, you know, it's a more general problem of, you know, but everywhere you turn when you look at the economics of a colonial college, its fate is tied to slavery. Yes, and and this indeed is it's it's a, it's an American story though, and it's something yeah. and, and, you know. As yes. Shannon would say, he he went through college. He never heard about this, and he went right. to Harvard. And right. so this is a story that all Americans need to hear. Right, 
And in fact, a lot of students have that same experience. A lot of alumni from these schools have that same experience. I was talking to, um, I was I was on a show quite some time ago where a Dartmouth alum called in and said that, you know, when he was at Dartmouth, and I taught at Dartmouth for several years, he lived in a dorm where they thought that they were in the slave quarters from the old colonial college, but they weren't sure. But that was the rumor that the students told each other. And that's the problem. The story of slavery on these campuses has largely been told through rumor and myth. Um, and now it's time mm-hmm. for us to really take mm-hmm. responsibility for telling it and, to, and for being honest about it. Yes, it is. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I want to know, before we close out, how has this work affected you personally? Wow. Um, you know, it's it's been amazing, really, in a lot of ways. I It's a project I'd never would have, you know, if you had asked me before I started it, you know, is this on the horizon for you? Um, I would have said absolutely not. I never thought I would have worked on this topic. Um, but in fact, it's changed everything about the way I think about my own history, the way I think about my relationship to my yes. own education, the way I think about yes. my history with these institutions. As a person who went to these colleges, actually has degrees from these colleges and has worked for them for most of his professional life, um, it's changed the way I think about all of that. And in part, actually, yes. it's created in me a sense that, you know, which I never had before, that these institutions are as much ours as they are anyone else's. Um, you okay. know, I, I know I went off to college as a first-generation college student, you know, with my sister, um, thinking I was lucky to be on a college campus. And I was certainly lucky to be on a college campus. But, in fact, I never imagined that centuries before I ever arrived there, someone else had earned my right to be there. Yes, yes. Through their sacrifice and, and their suffering. And that's really what this taught me, that you know, it changed the way I think about the United States and American history um, because it uh-huh. really did, you know, I'm a historian, and it actually finally taught me how central slavery was to everything we uh-huh. are as a nation today. Yeah. Yes, it, yes. And, you know, I put a comment just in the chat for everyone to see. It only takes one person to change the conversation. And, you know, Ruth Simmons changed the conversation. You have changed the conversation. And for that, I want to say thank you. (laughs) Well, I want to say thank you because you have changed the conversation. And and we're talking about it. And this is a group of, you know, you have genealogists who are listening to you. And we're doing a lot of research. And we're finding our ancestors enslaved. And we're not finding our ancestors at any of these Ivy League colleges. You know, when you see one African-American student that has been selected to uh, accepted at all these Ivy League colleges, it hits national news. Well, wait a minute. Right. We help build those universities. You know? right. And so exactly. this is information that we just need to talk about more and more and more. Why aren't we going to these universities? Why haven't we been accepted or, or, or. at these universities? Or, for example, they they sold people to raise the money to finish the roof. That's you know, right. The, the, yeah, you know, the, we we bought and sold human beings to raise the money to finish the roof and to finish the building. So not only did they build the buildings, but often, in fact, the way we raised the money was by purchasing and selling human beings. Yes. And and for some reason, somebody felt that was okay, although they did it under the the what the, the evangelists. They were evangelizing and 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 what have you, and they they were basically religious institutions. But yeah, colonial colleges they looked are at actually denominational. Human. Yeah, yeah, colonial colleges, right? The, the denominational colleges. So we're we're talking about really understanding uh, what happened back then, and then bringing it up to today. And and as you say, the truth has to come out. We ha- we can't talk about reconciliation until we talk about the truth. And so this is what 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 we've done tonight. And you know, just thank you so much. But do you have any parting words you would like to share with the listeners before we close out tonight? Well, I you know I just want to thank everyone for listening in and and for joining in the conversation. And you know, I as a historian, I love genealogy, and I think you know. History begins with the immediate, with the personal, with the family, with human beings. Um, And so the work that they do is the work that I do, and I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. 
Well, let's move on to what's going to happen next week, everybody, because my my show next week will focus on a book written by Daniel Schottstein, and the topic is The Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White. And I know you want to talk about that. So please, everyone, join me next week when we will discuss The Invisible Line. Uh, good night, everyone. Thank you, Professor Wilder. Just thank you so very much for joining me tonight. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to them to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone.